Welcome to another edition of the I'd Rather Be Writing podcast. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. I know it's been a while since my last podcast, and I apologize for this long break. Uh, During this break, I've mostly been focusing on writing, but lately I've I've realized that it's really valuable to have conversations with, with experts in the field. In fact, rather than detracting from writing, these conversations really give me a lot more to write about, more ideas, they're energizing, they're fun, they're um, really thought-provoking. Well, in this episode, I'm going to interview Mark Baker. Mark is someone that I admire a lot for his insights, his experience, for his blog posts that really kind of dig past uh, the norm and go beyond uh, traditional thought and and give us something a lot more rich and deep to think about. So uh, you can read his blog at every page is page one. I saw Mark speak at LavaCon in Portland, and I knew that uh, he was somebody I wanted to interview for a podcast. But before we dive into this interview, I do want to mention that this podcast is sponsored by Adobe. And when you get a chance, check out Adobe's Technical Communication Suite 4. This suite includes a powerful combination of tools. You get FrameMaker, RoboHelp, Illustrator, Captivate, Acrobat, and Presenter all in one integrated toolkit. And with with these tools, you can do single source publishing, rich multimedia integration, multi-channel publishing, and more. Uh, For example, with Frame, you can create XML or DITA content natively. Then you can publish anywhere using RoboHelp. Uh, Illustrator, Captivate, and Presenter allow you to deliver engaging interactive graphical content. You can learn more by clicking the Adobe Technical Communication Suite 4 link on the show notes page. All right, now let's go to the interview. You're listening to I'dRatherBeWriting.com, a podcast about technical communication. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. And today I'm talking with Mark Baker, uh, whose blog you may know, every page is page one, and who uh, recently presented at LavaCon uh, in Portland. He had a presentation called Include It All, Filter It Afterward. And uh, this is a presentation that I thought was really memorable, had some interesting ideas, some uh, deep thoughts, and uh, I wanted to follow up with Mark and explore some of these uh, some of these ideas a little more fully. Now, Mark is in Canada, and I am in Utah, so this is a Skype call. Uh, Mark, tell me a little bit about yourself. You've got your company is Analectic Communications. Uh, you do structured authoring. What, what else can you uh, tell us? Well, I've been in the uh, tech writing business for, I guess, about uh, over 20 years now, and fairly early in my career in tech writing, uh, stumbled into the world of SGML um, and ended up working for a company uh, called Omnimark Technologies here in Ottawa that uh, specialized in SGML, uh, created the first language for processing um, SGML and later XML, uh, and so got to see uh, a great many um, projects that were done uh, using structured text, structured authoring, um, intelligent content, and intelligent content processing uh, for a a wide variety of applications. Uh, And so I've kind of um, stayed in that that field ever since. Um, So my career has sort of been a combination of 
of um, writing documentation for people who uh, are programmers, uh, but also uh, almost equally um, creating um, systems that take advantage of structured text and the ability to process structured text. I think what my background uh, with Omnimark Technologies gave me was an appreciation for just how much you can do by um, by processing uh, structured text. Uh, that's really informed the kind of work I've I've been doing. So, tell me, how does the the background in structured text and, and processing structured text connect with your your uh, presentation on include it all, filter it afterwards? What's the the bridge there? I think the bridge is. Uh, that you know the concept of every page is page one is simply an observation about how people write on the web. Right? Just that you know you you hop around from web page to web page, and every web page starts again at page one. Um, that's something that is very natural to the web and very unnatural to traditional tech writing environments. Um, so. The question became for me: Well, how do we bridge that gap? How do we stop taking a FrameMaker book and bursting it into bits and sticking the bits up on the web with uh, next and back buttons? That's just totally unweb-like. Um, so, it, it, with every page is page one. I'm looking to to do a couple of things. One is to um, come up with sort of a style guide for writing technical documentation uh, that works on the web, that works as every page is page one. Uh, but there are also issues with that in terms of, okay, how do I, um, how do I create content as a series of every page is page one topics? How do I organize them? How do I link them? It creates a whole new set of problems that um, tech writers uh, and tech writing tools have not been well equipped to deal with. And so uh, you kind of have to deal with both problems if you want to get away from what I call the Franken book, which is the uh, all taking all the books and essentially uh, connecting them together in one vast hierarchy, uh, which is something you see on quite a lot of of, um, of technical documentation sets today. It ceased to be many books; it's become one monster book all threaded and connected, and none of them work as page one. And I think, uh, you know, that's not a deliberate style choice. Uh, that is a tool and process uh, consequence. Um, so I think it's really important to stress to the technical uh, communication community how important it is to get away from doing that and how important it is to understand how content works on the web uh, the web as a hypertext medium, uh, but then to be able to also provide um, style guidance and uh, tool guidance, process guidance around how to do that. Because if we don't, we can acknowledge that it's the way to do things, but if you don't have a way to actually get it done and you don't have style guidelines to follow, then you're still stuck with using a process you know, um, even if you recognize fully that it's not really creating great stuff for the web. I think that uh, a lot of people will agree uh, up front that that on the web the way we the way we search for information follows this pattern you've described where you you jump from one site to the next 
and every page is page one. But uh, I didn't really grasp the full ramifications of that idea until I was, uh, I was I started to listen to Too Big to Know, uh, the book by David Weinberger, and um, <clears throat> he he kind of he pointed out something that I think is important to add here about the the sort of difficulty or, or the reason people start in books and people start in books because because the long form tends to allow for more in-depth analysis and thought uh, people write books because uh, it takes them that long to get um, to, to to expand their argument you know it may take a series of chapters so if we suddenly go online where we're limited to um, shorter pages uh, than a book, obviously, and and we're trapped in this short form kind of content where everybody's constantly starting over. They can't keep this thread of the entire argument. Not that we're writing long arguments, so maybe it's irrelevant anyway. But uh, they're trapped in this short form. Does that make it more difficult for us to kind of explain a complicated computer program that may take you know multiple chapters for people to get? I think. There's a, there's a couple of aspects to that. I, I think there is certainly a place for books. In fact, I just yesterday uh, signed a contract with XML Press to write a book on every page is page one. And of course, the first thing I'm going to have to do in that book is say, well, how come you're writing a whole book if every page is page one? Uh, to which my answer is, well, people write books about poetry and they're not written in verse. They write books about screenplays and they're not movies. So sometimes, um, you know, the best way to talk about one media is to use a different one. Um, and so I think there definitely is a place for books. There is definitely a place for the reader who is going to sit down and follow a long-form argument. And that will always be the case. Um, but I think we can look at, um, you know, there used to be... Uh, theaters in every town with, uh, you know, vaudeville and singers and um, people would come and pluck and hum uh, on stage and all that's gone because we now have movies and TV. But the theater hasn't gone. The theater simply plays a different role. So books aren't going away, but they are already uh, and will continue, I think, to play a different role, a more specialized role. And that will allow them to concentrate more on being good at that specialized role. Um, I think in terms of people learning uh, systems, I think we've known for a very long time, it's what minimalism teaches us, that people learn complex systems not all at once by sitting down and reading a book, but by a combination of experience, reflection, um, getting more information, getting information when they get stuck, and so uh, even when you're learning something complex, you often take in information in chunks as you progress through the use of the system. That isn't obviously uh, universally applicable either because you don't want the guy flying your airplane or running your nuclear plant to be learning on the job. There are certain places where you expect there's got to be book learning first and you've got to pass the test before we let you loose on the uh, on the machinery. But that isn't, um, you know, the common form. Um, most of the time, people learn how to use even complex systems a bit at a time um, by combining experience, talking to people, 
communicating with people by email and over the web and by reading pieces of documentation. So I think every page is page one fits very well. I think it fits better than a book into that kind of learning pattern. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think you make an important point about how this chunked uh, style really fits how we learn. You know, I, I don't think it's really possible for people to process massive amounts of technical information in one sitting like, like they might do a, a novel or something longer where it's not really uh, a lot of new concepts and ideas and techniques and procedures that they have to try to suddenly understand. Uh, so tell me a little bit, you, you've talked about how every page is page one is a new style. Uh, what might an every page is page one topic look like? Uh, I mean, would Wikipedia lo- be a sort of pattern where you have a, a longer article than, than maybe what a typical help topic might be? Describe it for me. I think Wikipedia is a really good example of every page is page one. Um, you know, you can study a subject in Wikipedia uh, quite widely um, and you will read multiple articles when you do so and you'll probably start with one article um, which you may find almost by chance uh, somebody might recommend it to you you might find it through a Google search and then you're going to within that article um, you're going to see some reference to some subject you don't understand or some subject you want more information on you're going to click on that link and then you're going to go and you'll get a new article and that article isn't written as if it was the continuation of the article you were just reading it's a new page one and you will read that and then you may either go on from there or you may start going back you know, I think one can liken a book in computer science terms to a linked list it always leads forward and back um, if you reading Wikipedia it operates more like a stack you know you sort of pile one on top of another and pop things off the stack and you can do that in your browser simply you know click open a new window or open a new tab and then your tabs grow uh, off to the right and then as you pop you know as you finish with that pop stuff off you can just close that tab and you're back in the original page again so it's a, a different model but it's a model that puts the reader in charge of the sequence um, and what I like about Wikipedia is it is richly linked and this is always the the big problem Um, book material tends to be very sparsely linked because the assumption is you're going forward in a straight line and the people who say oh oh, well we can't have links because they'll distract people Um, you know I think boring text distracts people more than links I think if somebody's fascinated by what you're saying they won't even see the link but if they um, if they are puzzled they want to know more and the link is there, they'll click on it, and that's a good way to keep them in your material. Um, Because, you know, you click on a link in Wikipedia, you're still in Wikipedia. Um, So I think, yes, it's a very good example. Um, Length of the article, um, I think one of the key things you will find in Wikipedia, and one of the things I think is quite natural to the Every Page is Page 1 format, is that most Wikipedia pages actually follow a fairly well-defined structure for a particular type. So if you have country information, it doesn't matter what country you click on, the Wikipedia article will be organized fairly similarly. So 
uh, it's not a given that everybody will read the uh, article from beginning to end, but the structure allows people to find the piece they want within that. Um, I, and I think that is a big difference between having a structured um, article that is broken out into well-defined sections and having something that is simply one huge long piece of grey text. Um, it gives people the opportunity within that article that gives you the full story if you need it to be able to hop to the piece that you need if you already have some of the background. So I think structure is the answer to length because the problem we see when people try to cram things down to what readability studies say is the optimal length is you create something that just doesn't finish the thought. And so now what does the poor reader do? Uh, either you've given them an, an, uh, not enough information and they're stuck or you're giving them a piece of information and a link and then another piece of information and another link and the total information set's still just as long but there's the bother of having to click links when all I wanted to do was continue. I think you should always be able to click a link when you want to take a side path for your own reasons. I don't think you should ever have to click a link because you want to continue what you're reading now. So I, I think the concerns about length I think are overblown. It's taking one data point and exaggerating it as if it was the whole story. Uh, I think you have to balance several different data points to figure out what the optimal length is for treating a particular subject. It, you know, I want to jump in here and and just raise a, another question about length because um, I think this is really like a key uh, dilemma um, because if you if you have some okay, the optimal reading length is what like two hundred words they say something really short or maybe five hundred. It, it's it's something short, but if you have you have a complex topic that let's say it's 3,000 words and a reader goes to that page and they're like holy smokes you know look at all this text or look at all this content it's way more than they want they probably just want a specific answer um, you, the dilemma is okay if I if I have too much text it's off-putting to the reader uh, one of my readers recently didn't really like that I had a, a super long post right and uh, yet if you have too short of text then, as you say, it doesn't tell the whole story. It's like you're 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 then forcing the reader to keep jumping around to get all the information. So you said that the the key to solving this dilemma is in in a common structure. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of uh, elaborate a little bit more on what that structure is. I mean, are we are we following a similar pattern where you where you have like very clear subheadings and very clearly or very clearly shown tasks and other things. What is the structure that, that solves the dilemma? I think you know, if you look at an awful lot of, um, of short-form material, I think you'll find that a lot of it very naturally fits into a structure. I don't think, nobody's defined it exactly, but it's just become part of the culture. A recipe, for instance. Everybody knows exactly what the structure for a recipe is. And if you... Uh, for instance, are referring to a recipe not because you're going to cook the dish, but because you're making a shopping list, then you, you, you can find the piece that lists all the ingredients so that you can make your shopping list without reading everything else. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know who, you know, if somebody somewhere at some point 
made a virtual XML schema and said, here is how the world will create recipes from now on. I don't think that's what happened at all. I think that shorter pieces naturally fall into structures. And I think you can see that all through Wikipedia. This is just a standard set of things that you always want to know in an article about a person. Where were they born? Um, when did they die? If they have died, um, you know, if it's if it's an article about a race car driver, then you want to know well what races did they win? What series did they compete in? These are just natural things. Uh, so I think structure very naturally comes out um, in shorter pieces. It tends to get swallowed up in longer pieces. Um, there are other types, uh, other occasions where you might want to deliberately make up a structure. But I think if you, for so much material, the structure is natural. All you need to do is conform to it, and and maybe tighten it up for your material. You know, maybe decide which variation you want to you use and be more consistent in that. But finding structure in in short content is is not at all difficult. Um, and a simple tour of Wikipedia, you'll find dozens of different structures for different types of information. So, so bringing up this topic of structure, just it seems like the elephant in the room here is is that Ditta seems to provide this trio of of topic types: the the task, the reference, the concept. That uh, for a lot of people is is this um, ideal structure for tech com. And I know you've written before that that uh, or you've referred to these things as a terrible troika that traps us into a certain mode of thinking. Uh, what are your thoughts on on these three? topic types as a as a structure to follow well i think there is a there is some analytical value in that division i think because it does kind of reflect that three different kinds of user behavior sometimes the user simply wants to do something which is a task sometimes they want to learn something and sometimes they want to look stuff up um so I think it's useful to say there are these three types of content, and you can look at information mapping, uh, which has this idea of blocks, and they have a few more types. So you can add more basic types or fewer basic types. Um, but from an analytical point of view, those three are reasonable. Um, I think what where people get into trouble is they interpret this as all of my concepts must be in in one set of topics and all of my tasks in another. So you are always separating the task from the concept. Um, and that I don't think is what Ditta actually had in mind necessarily. I think it was saying you know, separate the task component from the um, from the concept component. It wasn't saying don't put them together in one article. Uh, one of the problems I have with, uh, you know, with Ditta terminology is that it doesn't make a distinction between topic as the unit that you write and topic as the unit you present. And I, there's nothing in DITA that says you can't make that distinction. There are practitioners of DITA who do make that distinction. But I think if you just come to DITA um, without uh, sort of realizing that, you can end up, and we see a lot of this, where people have got always the concept is in a completely separate place from the task. And as I wrote recently in my blog, you know, I think the real thing we have to support as technical communicators is decisions. Most users can figure out how to push buttons. That really isn't their issue. 
um, their issue is, how does this button, how does this field relate to the business problem I'm trying to solve? And it's that relationship between their business problem and the machinery that is the real heart of what technical communication should be doing. And that means that actually the relationship between the task and the concept is pretty close. So you may or may not decide to write them separately, um, but they should usually, in most cases, you need conceptual material that relates the button pushing instruction to the business problem that the user tried to solve. And without that um, connection, you know, the, the user saying, oh, well, I can see how to fill in this field, but I have absolutely no idea what will happen if I do, and I have absolutely no idea what its impact will be on my business. So I don't didn't need you to tell me how to how to fill something in and click uh, click OK. I've done that six billion times. I need to know what the consequence of it is. So I think while it's a useful analytical tool, um, the terrible troika has in many ways led us astray and has led us into creating material that is either too disconnected, in other words, the task and the concept are, are, are a million miles from each other, and also into them being too connected in the sense that you end up creating the Franken book. So I think it's really important that we focus on the topic as a unit of information delivery the every page is page one topic. And then as a separate question, we can say, what's the most efficient way for us to create and assemble good every page is page one topics? And that may mean writing in, in smaller units um, and then assembling. But I think we have to have an information design view that is not based on this notion that we should simply separate concepts and tasks, because I think that does a lot of harm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, your point about how we need a, a, a model for assembly and separating how we assemble and design uh, this information versus how we chunk it up into little little bits. Because I know that um, certainly if, if one thinks, oh, I'm going to separate all my concepts from my tasks, and then, then you have links between the two and everything's an individual topic and they're all super short, you end up with like a thousand topics. And, and for, the, for the user who's trying to get some information, it creates a, a pinball effect of jumping around from point to point without any clear, cohesive structure. Now, or without any clear, like, um, integrity of an idea. Now, I want to connect this Every page is page one to the title of your presentation, which is include it all, filter it afterwards. Um, like, what did you mean by include it all, filter it afterwards, and how does that connect with every page is page one? Well, the title, of course, comes from um, the uh, David Weinberger's book, uh, Too Big to Know, um, uh, where he is essentially talking about how our relationship to knowledge. Uh, has changed in the era of the web, where knowledge used to be a very carefully constructed and fixed thing. Uh, the purpose of a book was to fix a piece of knowledge, and so it was very meticulously prepared, often over a great deal of time. I mean, years and years and years in the case of Darwin's Origin of Species, for instance. 
Um, so, I mean, he was doing all of this work for a couple of decades and publishing nothing. Well, science doesn't work that way anymore. Science publishes everything. Open notebook science, it's all out there on the web. People can interact with it, and people demand that. We saw with ClimateGate um, that um, whatever one may have thought about whether or not um, the, uh, the climate scientists were fudging the data, it became very clear that people expected them to show the data. Um, it was not acceptable to say, I'm a scientist, I looked at the data and here are my conclusions, trust me. That doesn't fly anymore. Um, show us the data. So people are less and less willing to simply accept an authoritative conclusion handed down to them. They want access to the data. And the other thing is that, and I think it's a really important point, that um, the web has given us access to experience as well as credentials. So we not only can talk to the people with credentials who've written the book, we can talk to people who've actually done things. And so much technical communication now happens on the web between users, between somebody who's made something work on their system and somebody who's trying to make it work. Uh, that access to experience um, as well as, as authority it really drives people to say, I'm not going to just go and look in the book. I'm going to do a web search to see if I can find somebody out there like me who's done this. And then, yes, they'll get some of that. They may get some documentation pages. They'll get a whole bunch of stuff on their Google search. And then they get to pick and choose and which bits they want. So and yet another aspect of this is the long tail. Um, there is so much information out there about even the simplest products. Uh, and the thing I'm trying to do may be obscure. It may be something the documentation doesn't cover. But somebody out there has done it. So again, rather than going straight to the documentation, um, I say, it's probably not even in there. I'm just going to go out to the web. So if we continue to build documentation in a walled garden, we're going to just lose the audience because they're going to be out there looking for information that's in the long tail, looking for experienced people who've done the thing they're trying to do. And, and, and any documentation that happens to come along with that search is good too. But unless we put that material out there where it gets included with all those other results so that the user can filter it themselves and decide which bit suits them, uh, which bit answers their question, um, then we're simply going to lose them. Uh, they're simply not going to bother looking at it at all. We're simply not going to get any hits on it. And then, uh, you know, the, our, uh, our bosses are going to start saying, well, what am I paying you for exactly? So, I, I, you know, I think we simply have to acknowledge that that's how people work today, uh, more and more. Um, they are going out to the web because they want it all. They want to have all the, the options in front of them and be able to filter for themselves. They're not paying us anymore to be a filter. So, willing, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. So I was just going to uh, try to summarize what um, some of these key points that I understand here. So in the book paradigm, um, 
people were constrained by by their supplies, right? They couldn't write infinitely, and and they had to whittle down the content they wanted to deliver to the user. But but online, you have like this infinite space, and people are searching, and they expect to find uh, all this data. They they they're gonna search somewhere else if it's not on your site, and you're not constrained by paper and binding costs and things like that. So you say. All these edge cases, these uh, all the these non-mainstream scenarios, every sort of uh, task that might be something a user has a question about, even if it's not kind of one of the core tasks, you say just include it all, link to it, or or somehow uh, incorporate it into your system because um, you can do that in the online world. Is that is that um, similar to kind of what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when you um, pick up a book and search in the book. You're searching one book, and that book was written by an author who had to make all sorts of decisions about what to include, what not to include. And so it's the author's version of what they think the high-priority items are going to be, the things that a lot of people will want to do. Um, but the author may have got that wrong, and we're constantly complaining in tech pubs that we don't really know what the user is doing. It's very difficult to get that information. Um, and there's all sorts of things that one elected to leave out, uh, either because there wasn't time to put them in, there wasn't space to put it in, or because you had to finish the book before anybody even figured it out. I mean, so much about a product's figured out after it's been released. So there's always new information about a product being generated all through its life. Um, so a, a book is just not a particularly promising place to look for information compared to looking on the web. Um, uh, there's a, a, an analogy I, that I've been using recently um, to uh, a supermarket. A uh, supermarket has the staples uh, and it makes most of its traffic on you know bread, bananas, milk and but it also has shelves upon shelves upon shelves upon shelves of much more obscure items. There's all sorts of things that you can find, you know, uh, on the third shelf up in the twelfth aisle, there's one little row of tiny little jars with something weird you've never heard of in it. And you think, why is that there? Who, who on earth buys that? But if you... This is part of actually what the long tail is about, because the long tail isn't a long tail of weird people. It's a long tail of... Um, ordinary people who have some exceptional need. So I may have, I may buy uh, bread and gorgonzola and you may buy bread and sardines and somebody else may buy bread and apricot jam. And apricot jam and gorgonzola and sardines are all going to be very low sellers for the supermarket. But it stocks them anyway. And the reason it stocks them is if they don't stock that stuff, we won't buy our bread and our milk and our bananas there. So people are shopping on for information on the web not because it's a better source for bread and bananas and milk but because they can get their gorgonzola and their sardines and their apricot jam in the same place. You know, it, 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 uh, it strikes me that there's so much about the book paradigm that carries over into way into the way that we write and and act that uh is just 
Like it's we're in a transitional time. It's going to take some time to sort of unlearn this. And, and you know, this is an aside, but uh, one point Weinberger is making in his book is that we we tend to hold up the book as this epitome of knowledge, uh, just with this assumption that knowledge, you know, has the best form as a book. And and you know that I think that's an idea that's going to be outdated soon. Um, all these other online methods can can bring up better, more accurate, more helpful, more practical, <clears throat> more theoretical um, forms of knowledge that far outdo what you can do in a book. You know, Weinberger says that a book is like a one-way uh, conver- one monologue. It's not a dialogue, a conversation. It's not continually growing. It's, it's, it's printed once and, and that's it. And uh, I don't think knowledge works the best way that way and yet when we when we author help topics we're kind of in the same same model we, we write it you know before release we publish it it's done we move on to another project now I think um, we'd be better off with this with a paradigm where where knowledge is continually evolving and and uh, getting information from feedback from real users who are, who are adding whether it's through comments or feedback or through direct edits to this growing information um, I just want to um, cover one last point: um, the filters. Uh, so, if you have this 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 growing body of knowledge and it's getting bigger and bigger, you're including it all. Your or your um, it's it's just getting more massive. You want to give some the users some tools in order to narrow it down to just the kind of information they want to see. And, uh, of course, we give them a search box, which a uh, few of us know how they work in our help authoring tools because that information is usually never made explicit. But but apart from how, how the search totally works, what are some other filtering tools we could give to users to kind of narrow down this enormous scope into just the information they want? I'm not sure that it is so much about our creating filtering tools as it is about our making our content accessible to their filtering tools. Um, one of the things about the search function in a help system, for instance, is this, the help, search function in a, help, in a help system doesn't work very well. And the reason it doesn't work very well is this paradoxical fact that search works better the more stuff you're searching. Google doesn't do full-text search. People still think it, that's how it works. It's not. It does a very sophisticated statistical correlation between all of the things that you've ever searched for and everybody else has ever searched for and all of the content that it has access to, which is in the, you know, the trillions and trillions of words. And so it can be far more sophisticated about how it matches it, which is why it's not uncommon that you could search a help system, an online help system, for a piece of information, not find it using the help system's own search. Turn around, use Google, and find the exact piece of information you wanted in that help system. Because Google beats the help system's own search. And it does it because it simply has more information to use. So uh, that's a perfect example of don't worry about pr providing the mechanism yourself. Make accommodate your material to the to what people are already using, and people are already using things like Twitter, 
Facebook, social media. Um, you know, we talk a lot about curation, but the fact of the matter is that curation has gone social. I don't trust an, out, an external curator. I trust my own network, my own web of, of, of friends and contacts. Um, I trust the, the people I follow on Twitter, including yourself, uh, to filter all that's uh, interesting that's happening in techcom. Uh, that's my filter. I don't look to one particular curated source. I trust my network. Uh, so I think while there are things we can do in terms of providing filters, the main thing we should be looking at is being filter friendly, working with the filters that people already have. So a big part of every page one is create topics that will work when the user lands on them from a Google search. You know, and this brings up a, a, a question I want to explore in a future podcast is uh, this difference between, between the world of help systems and the world of the web. Because when you, you say we want to write so that it's going to be, you know, able to be integrated into the, web, the world of the web and the Google search, that can create a lot of conflict because sometimes the way you you search and you you search optimize, or you optimize for search engines um, with a help authoring tool, isn't nearly the same uh, techniques you would use for optimizing with Google, and I think that's just one one aspect of of many uh, of these these clashing worlds. But uh, I I don't want to get into that today because uh, can't. I don't want to go too long. <laughs> but uh, Mark, is there any last things you'd like to say before we wrap up? Um, any, any, uh, anything that uh, we didn't cover that you you want to you want to cover, or or we pretty much um, explored this topic with with enough depth today? I think there is a there's a wonderful quote uh, in Weinberger. Uh, he says, "To think that." knowledge is shaped like a book is to marvel that a stone fits so neatly in its hole in the ground. Uh, in other words, we have made the book be the best means of transferring knowledge within its limitations. And we have come to regard things as best practices which are in fact only best practices when a certain set of constraints exist. If you remove the constraints, those best practices only existed to, uh, to try to deal with the constraints you were dealing with. Take the constraints away, the best practices just don't apply anymore. And I think there's so often we get ourselves into trouble because we take what we regard as objective best practices that are really just constraints from the book world and attempt to apply them to the web. This is, however well-intentioned it, it may be, it really is fatal. And uh, we really, really have to break out of that. And to do that, we have to understand what the limitations of paper really were, how, how many problems it creates to have to go through a publishing process and, and and press ink onto, onto dead trees as a way of distributing information. I think one of the great virtues of Too Big to Know is that it really holds the book paradigm up to the light and says, 
this is what was wrong with this. It may have been the best we could do, but it's not the best we can do now. And we can't take all of what we think are best practices from the book world, simply apply them to the web and, and go along our way. Uh, if we do that, we are missing what the web is about. And that means we'll be swallowed up by the people who get the web. So we have to, we have to get the web. And we have to get that um, people, whatever they're coming to, their expectations are trained by the web. And that's true for more and more people every day. Well, thanks, Mark. Um, now, if people want to learn more about uh, about you and your company, every page is page1.com is your site. Uh, is there any other sites you want to point people to, or is that the main one you want to draw people to? Um, that is the main one. Um, the, the actual, my company is Analecta Communications, which is at analecta.com. Um, and that's, there's a link to that from the, um, from every page's page one site. Um, there's also a couple of other sites I have, um, uh, spiffy.info, that's S-P-F-E dot info, and spiffyopentoolkit.org, um, which is a work in progress on something I call the Spiffy architecture. It's something that derived from everything I learned all those years with uh, Omnimark Technologies about how to process content. Um, it's not ready for prime time yet, but anybody who's really interested in, in tools and processes um, might find it interesting. Um, and it, it's really created a tool set that's more optimized for web-like things for every page's page one collections than it is for the book model. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. I appreciate you talking to me today. Not at all. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks again for listening to the I'd Rather Be Writing podcast. You can learn more at I'dRatherBeWriting.com. And uh, check out the podcast archive. If you're new to the podcast, there are over 120 or 30 podcasts on a wide range of subjects. You can all download them. Uh, if, you, if you're listening to this podcast online, I really recommend that you, you subscribe through iTunes. Um, that will automate the downloading of future podcasts right into your, your uh, iPod iPad, whatever you're using. If you have questions or want to drop me a note, you can contact me at tom at I'd rather be writing.com. Again, thanks.